Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Sean Munger for the New Books Network Environmental Studies channel. I've got uh, an interview with Dr. Melanie Keechel, author of Smell Detectives, an olfactory history of 19th century urban America. Really interesting book about senses in the 19th century that we don't often hear about in environmental history. I am a historian, author, podcaster, and teacher. I have another historical podcast called Second Decade that's on the Recorded History Podcast Network, and I teach history classes online. Uh, You can go to my platform, thathistoryguy.com. But now let's speak to Dr. Keechel. She's really great, and her book about smell in 19th century cities is a really fascinating read. Here we go. Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network in Environmental Studies. Uh, I'm Sean Munger, uh, the host of uh, this channel today. And today we're going to be talking to Melanie Keechel about her new book, Smell Detectives, an Olfactory History of 19th Century Urban America. Hello, Melanie. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Great. Well, uh, I really enjoyed the book. This was a very, very interesting book. Um, could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you. I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed the book because that's what every author wants to hear once they get to this part <laughs> of the process. Um, so a bit about myself. I am a assistant professor of history at Virginia Tech. And I've been here for six years now. It's great. And before this, I started this project when I was working on my PhD in history at Rutgers, which is also a fabulous place to do research and to think. Um, And even earlier before that, I grew up on a farm, which maybe gave me a lot of experience with smells, although it's not directly how I got to this project. Um, when I started my graduate studies, like anyone starting graduate school, I was reading all the things and I was captivated by this new field of sensory history. And I wrote my historiography essay. I read what was being done and discovered that there wasn't so much on smell and foolishly decided I should do some smell. Um, and now 10 years later, there is a book. So it worked, uh, but it did take a lot of time. That's uh, that's really interesting, and, and I'm interested by your farm background, uh, possibly playing maybe indirectly into into how you got interested in this. Uh, also interested in in uh, learning that there's not much written on the history of smell. I, I would imagine that to be true. Did you have to figure out how to write about about smell in order to in order to do this project? I did, but before I had to figure out how to write about smell, I had to figure out how and where to research smell. One of the things that is tricky, and I think this is why we have less work, although the body is certainly growing on smell relative to other senses, 
is that smell is what Diane Ackerman calls the mute sense. That means um, people don't talk about it much, but it also means there isn't a lot of vocabulary for talking about smells either. Um, so for me, one of my starting points was just finding the conversations um, about smell, finding where smell made its way into the archival record, because odors are ephemeral and fleeting. Um, and unless there's a reason for people to write something down about smell, it's something that is very difficult for historians to access, um, particularly you know, as we move back further um, in time, but also across different spaces. Um, so that was the, the first challenge, even before the writing. But I will say there were a couple of uh, wonderful books that were models for me um, and really helpful, although they didn't take me directly where I needed to go. The first is Elaine Corben's The Foul and the Fragrant, which I recommend to absolutely anyone and everyone who's interested in smell in the past. It's a He's a French historian, and it's um, really a history of how odors mattered in France in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. And then there's also um, a book by David Barnes called The Great Stink of Paris, um, which picks up where Corbin leaves off, but uh, really takes the questions in a really uh, different direction, um, looking at public health and efforts to reform not only the city, but also peasants in the countryside and to change um, both how things smelled, but also how those people smelled the world around them. Um, it's interesting about you mentioned those previous studies, and, and I noticed that they focus on on Europe and kind of uh, rural uh, more rural environs. And, and your book focuses specifically on American cities in, in the 19th century. Was it just because that was that was a niche that uh, needed to be filled in this field? Or was it because of the, the records? Or what drew you to that specific aspect of uh, smell? So um, really, the question is that because I'm trained as a 19th century cultural historian, um, and my area of focus is the 19th century United States. And so I picked up these questions from these wonderful books, as well as work that was being done in sociology and anthropology of the senses, and applied them to the archives and the areas I was already interested in. Um, and luckily, I found there was quite a bit going on um, in American cities, much like their European counterparts that had to do with odors and olfaction, um, primarily because people understood those as important to their own health. In the period that I work on, um, germ theory was not yet uh, discovered or, and even once discovered was not yet widely believed in. Instead, people followed, um, a different theory of disease causation, which is that miasmas, literally bad airs would make them sick. Um, so one of my first challenges was figuring out what a miasma actually was to 19th century Americans. Um, I had some help again from people who worked on rural environs and then best book for me for this was Canaveri uh, Valentius's Health of the Country, which is just wonderful and has a whole chapter about airs. Um, from her, I got the research suggestion, and it's really, I think, important for anyone to go into a period dictionary 
Um, and so what I found by using the 1832 edition of Webster's American Dictionary is that miasmas were anything that was wrong in the air, an impurity in the air, but the definition of air listed its first quality as inodorous. So when I put those two things together, I realized that when people were talking about smells, what they were talking were about were um, with purities in the air. Um, and so even though a smell is not a miasma exactly, there is a very strong connection, particularly in how people um, understood and perceived those things. And so that was one of my operating principles and theories um, as I was amassing this evidence. Um, but it was not nearly as straightforward figuring all of those things out as it is in me narrating it to you now. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, you mentioned Conaveri Valentius, uh, and you're right. Her book, Health of the Country, is an absolutely wonderful book. Uh, I I used it, uh, and and her a lot of her research was very helpful to me in my own dissertation research, which was on climate history in the early 19th century. But um, and I, I noticed that there seemed to be kind of a kinship, I think, between uh, your book and and a lot of the work that she did, and I thought that was very interesting. Um, so, what is it really about smells in 19th century cities that that uh, is important to history that people need to know about? So I think there are two things that are happening in the 19th century with American cities that we know, but we think about differently when we start to consider all of these conversations about smell. So if we understand Americans, um, like people elsewhere at that time, to be concerned about the air they breathed, having a direct impact upon their health, um, we also have to consider how rapid and um, cities are growing in this period, both in terms of size, but also in terms of uh, the number of cities, particularly in the United States, and how much industri industrialization and industrial concentration is part of that. Both urban growth and industrial growth introduce more and more powerful smells. So moving to cities, which we know that Americans were doing, um, particularly after the market revolution, but we also know immigrants were doing coming um, across the Atlantic Ocean um, from Europe, um, probably also coming uh, from Asia, although I don't tell that part of the story. Um, they're encountering environments that they understand to be unhealthy because of the smell. And so the question that I really focus on is how people reconcile, right? Those two things, their desire and need to be in cities for jobs primarily, um, and their belief that bad air, foul odors, which they're encountering everywhere in cities will make them ill. Um, and I think that's really the contribution that the book makes. It takes a question, I mean, it takes things that we already know about, but it shows us how people experienced these things in a day-to-day -day visceral way. At least I hope. You read it, you can say. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it was very visceral. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I like that about it in that, in that it's, 
I think it could easily, I mean, when you talk about something like smell, I think it could become very, and especially with many of the sources that you use, which are medical reports and scientific reports and later court cases, that it could be kind of, uh, I don't, it's just sterile maybe is not the, is exactly the opposite word right. that I'm talking about, but, but uh, you do kind of bring it to life. Uh, I, I liked the stories uh, early in the book about the reformers who were visiting the basements of tenements and, and that kind of thing. And that really sort of made it, made it alive for me. How did you find those kinds of sources? That is an excellent question. And one of the things that I have certainly benefited from in becoming a historian is that I um, began my professional work as a historian during the same period when uh, digitization of 19th century sources was happening in earnest. Um, In order to find smell conversations, when I first began this work, I was looking for... um, and I didn't know where to look, and I didn't know what I would find. The initial charge really was go write a smell paper. Um, and you, in order to do that, I had to figure out everything, top to bottom. And so I began with our wonderful databases of 19th century newspapers, um, just diligently plugging away, entering smell and the other words for smell that I knew. Um, I had a list of nine, so it was not a very long list. That's part of it being a mute sense. And just collecting every mention um, in the 19th century and starting to find out what were the patterns, right? When did these conversations occur? What were people talking about? And I had, I had begun the project expecting it to be about um, health. I had looked at um, 19th century health reports, medical reports, board of health reports, and I couldn't find smell in them. And I was wrong. <laughs> but it took me a long time, and I think it takes everyone a long time, um, to learn the vocabulary of the period. Um, and what I eventually found once I had plumbed through all sorts of short articles, longer articles, people complaining about a smell, um, is that when these moved into medical discourse, what people were talking about um, in those journals and articles wasn't odor or smell, but effluvia, uh, which is a word I don't use very often in my daily life. Um, Vitiated air is a second phrase that comes up a lot in the book, but certainly not in everyday conversation. And so it, I had to get purchase in those conversations, which I could only do by taking the time of searching and cataloging every small reference and piece um, in order to understand these larger medical conversations. So one of the things that happened um, was after years, you know, four, five, years of working through the material, I got to be very good about going and knowing what I needed to look at and where I needed to look, right? Where the conversations about smell would be. Um, But when I began this search and I tried going to archives first, I had lots of conversations with archivists where they, (laughs) they didn't know how to help me. And they essentially said, good luck. Um, So what, doing this research required was really, you know, spending the time 
with the sources and not giving up when I couldn't find the conversations at the start. Um, I ended up going back to those same health reports once I understood that effluvia and also nuisance were words um, that medical practitioners and particularly boards of health used when they were talking about smell. And suddenly these documents that I had found very dry and disappointing um, in my first year of research revealed volumes to me. Um, the other thing that I followed up and I got particularly lucky was I kept track of people, right? The names of people who were talking about odors, especially, um, when they appeared more than once. And I looked, um, using WorldCat to find if they had personal files, um, anywhere in archives. And some of them did, particularly Charles Frederick Chandler. Um, he was a chemist and he was the president of New York City's Board of Health for a decade. He had been involved in the Board of Health much longer than that. Um, but he also was a founding professor at Columbia University. And so all of his files, all of his personal files, and I'm not sure that man threw anything out ever, um, were there in rare books and manuscripts for me to look through. Um, and he has lots and lots of things that have nothing to do with smell. Um, again, it was a lot of weeding and sorting and finding the materials that were most relevant. But then um, I found boxes and folders full of him, of materials that he had used to try to figure out smells in New York they were coming from, what health problems they were causing, if they were actually dangerous, um, as well as what technologies and um, new innovations could keep these smells at bay. Um, and Unfortunately, right, he had all his notes for every talk he ever gave, but there were very few talks. Um, and a lot of these notes are just like notes you or I might take in the course of doing our work, you know, incomplete sentences, random ideas jotted down. There was no uh, rhyme or reason I could necessarily discern. Um, so it took some time of, of sitting with those materials as well and thinking through how this man had encountered the problem in his own lifetime, in his career, in his profession, um, and how he was fitting these pieces together. Um, but I have to say, like having done all of that work, I'm deeply grateful to the fact that no one went through his materials and just tossed them because they looked insignificant. Um, because they really do, since they're not complete sentences, look insignificant when you first look at them. I mean, there are newspaper clippings that are pinned to the top of a yellowed piece of paper, which were lecture notes for something that he was going to do. Um, but one of the things that I was able to do because his collection had not been recatalogued when I first used it was I was able to go through all those materials and discern what he was organizing um, these materials around. Um, and that helped me to sort of work backwards and to think through how all of this material, which I in other places would not think belonged together, what belonged together for him. Um, so it was a different sort of research problem. Um, but working with those materials and having really like the folders he had stuffed at some point in the 1870s or the 1890s, um, 
gave me a lot of material uh, would be lost. And this is one of the benefits, I think, when you have a scrapbook or you have a collection that someone put together at the moment, um, whether we're talking about the 19th century or earlier or even later, right? It can give us as historians a little bit of a peek into this person's brain and what they think is important and how they're putting materials together. Um, but it's up to us to figure out what the connections were. Um, so I think those were two of really the most important things for me um, when I got started um, that really helped me to, to find the conversations and to figure out what was most important in thinking about smells and cities. Wow, that's great. You, you said so much there. Uh, it yeah, sounds like it, this, this <laughs> no, no, that's great. Uh, this fellow uh, Chandler was his name, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like you really got to kind of know him almost as a person, which is uh, such a fascinating way to interact with the past. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if, if, if that was kind of the impression that you were ever actually in conversation with him. Um, I don't know if that's how I feel about him. I mean, he was important in his own time, but like many other people who are important in their own time, he's sort of faded, I guess, into the mists mm -hmm. of history. He wasn't a president, so he doesn't stand out. Um, he's certainly important in the history of chemistry um, because he's one of the founders of the American Chemical Society, and they have an investment in his story, in keeping his story and knowing his story. Um, but there are lots of things about him that I don't know and I didn't look into, right? I know very little about his personal life. Um, although he was married and he became a photography enthusiast, um, that's also uh, something that was fairly common in the late 19th century, particularly among chemists. I think it was a new way that they could use set in their laboratories and, and they really got into it. Um, but, you know, hmm. that's, that, that's a totally separate story. Um, the other thing is that, you know, Chandler... Um, I'm very grateful to because he gave me my book title. <laughs> um, the phrase <laughs> smell detectives came out of an interview that he gave um, and I found in the newspaper. Um, but it, he was very dismissive of what I spent a lot of time focusing on the book. Um, when, so Chandler, you know, created this phrase smell detectives to say that citizens are very poor smell detectives. Uh, he goes on to say that, you know, when a person gets annoyed with an odor, they assume that it's coming from nearby and um, they immediately cast the blame on whatever's closest to them. But Chandler disagreed that that was actually how odors worked or how one should be perceiving them. And part of this was self-serving. Um, in the 1870s, when Chandler was president of the Board of Health, um, because of the belief that foul odors caused illness, he was responsible. He and the board were responsible for regulating the odors in New York City. And when it still smelled... It was the Board of Health that citizens turned against, right, as not doing their job, as not regulating these nuisance producers and offensive trades. Um, that's another phrase that I took me a while to figure out, that offensive trade, which is a category of businesses in the 19th century, um, that really means businesses that produce foul odors, Um and once you figure that out, it's really clear. Every business that they talk about is one of the offensive trades. 
uh, stinks. <laughs> um, so hmm. Chandler at first wants to work and he wants to explain the science and he wants to explain how odors travel across space. Um, but then he gets really frustrated and uh, citizens make poor smell detectives. And I understand why he said that. I don't necessarily agree with him because well before um, Chandler is in control of New York City's Board of Health and before New York City has a standing Board of Health, there are lots of people, um, and they're not just physicians, who are acting as smell detectives. And by that, I mean they smell something in the air that concerns them and they try to find its source. Um, and in doing that, many of these people do accurately identify um, sources of pollution and things that under germ theory, we also consider to be health threats, um, but they're going about it in a very different way. Um, and yeah, a lot of those things happen to be in their neighborhoods. Um, Chandler, when the Board of Health in the 1870s is 1860s and 1870s is trying um, to push all those things out of New York City neighborhoods. Um, but when odors blow back, um, this is where his poor smell detective comes into play. This, uh, these people who uh, smell something and just assume it's the gas works next door that the Board of Health has made install odor-consuming apparatus. Um, so it's a jurisdictional and it's a political power issue for Chandler, even though for the people who he's frustrated with, you know, it's, it's something that we do every day. When I walk my dog, I smell things and I think about where they come from. And I did that before I started researching smell, um, as well as now where I'm probably more aware than most people. Oh, that's that's really interesting, and and what you just said about about walking your dog and, and kind of unsophisticated or at least not an not a scientific um, understanding of of smells that's something I can relate to. Um, lived in uh, Portland, Oregon, many many years ago before a certain part of it was was redeveloped. There was the old Henry Weinhardt's Brewery down there, and the smell of hops cooking was was very intense. And I remember it was right across the street from a really bad seafood restaurant called the Fish Grotto. And so people would refer to it as the Fish Grotto smell, even though it had absolutely nothing to do with that place. Um, that's uh, really interesting. Uh, I think that it's kind of the journey of Chandler. And then there's even others in the book who – and this seems kind of a trajectory that that you you talk about – where they start out basically, and you just talked about this a moment ago, they start out basically as scientists trying to explain something. And then they eventually kind of morph into politicians or people, at least with political power, when they get appointed to boards of health. And that's a curious journey that, and I'm, I'm wondering, you just noted that Chandler became kind of frustrated. And it seems to some extent like his frustration was a result of the unexpected consequences of suddenly having some kind of political influence on health or on how cities worked. And it, it, that seemed to recur a couple of times in, in the book. W was that your sense as well? Yeah. So um, one of the things that following smells um, and the concerns about them let me do was really follow the arc of 
creating organized public health in the 19th century. Um, I think Chandler, um, he's very prominent um, because I had so much access to his work, but I don't think that his trajectory is the only trajectory. So in early in the book, um, before there are standing boards of health that are staffed by physicians in cities, there are a lot of physicians who are trying to impress upon politicians and the city government that cities will be healthier if they create boards of health and put physicians on them, physicians and scientists who understand um, the city environment in different ways than politicians and who might not be swayed by special interest in the way that politicians um, often are. And so um, they spend a lot of time um, and a lot of ink, very lengthy reports trying to push these, um, this agenda and they're not successful. Um, and so I think they get frustrated with a very different political reality, which is that they weren't being listened to in the way that they thought they should be. Chandler comes into the story after the civil war and after the civil war is when, um, American cities do start creating standing boards of health that are staffed by physicians and that have regulatory powers themselves. They don't make recommendations to the city board or to the city alderman or the common council. Instead, they do the regulating. They set schedules of fines and they also um, can shut businesses down if they don't uh, adhere to what the boards of health are requiring. So Chandler enters the story at a very different point of time. Um, this is an experiment in government, right? In the United States, we have lots of experiments in government. And in the early years, this is a tenuous experiment. Physicians have been pushing for this for a long time. Um, but other people, particularly real estate owners, are not so inclined to change practices um, because a board of health tells them to do so. And that's one of the things that Chandler is particularly frustrated by. Um, when he talks about citizens making poor smell detectives, he also is particularly irked that some of New York's um, very wealthy citizens are turning against the Board of Health instead of supporting the Board of Health. Um, and he thinks that they're doing this out of self interest because their um, real estate. Uh, not just the houses they live in where they still smell things and they are complaining, um, but also their investments, right? In real estate throughout the city, um, businesses in the greater uh, metropolitan area, those things are being regulated in ways that are costly for business uh, owners and um, particularly the owners of the offensive trades. So he can see this happening um and it's for for the uh for chandler's opposition uh the continued existence of smells is an easy way um and a readily available way to attack the board of health um but Chandler's story is very different because of the moment when he enters this political fray. There's another chemist in Chicago uh, before there's a standing board of health uh, by the name of Friedrich Mala. He's hired by the city government to conduct a 
uh, scientific analysis of the Chicago River because the city stunk and the city's leading businessmen, the Board of Trade, were worried that pollution in the river, which uh, a lot of which was coming from slaughterhouses, but which was so bad that the people who worked on the docks on the river had started wearing nose guards. That's an attempt to protect their health, right? To stop themselves from breathing in the smells. Um, the Board of Trade was so concerned about that that they said to the city government, you have to do something. And the city government was like, uh, okay. Um, they'd been getting petitions about this for months. It wasn't a new issue, but um, now that economic leaders were telling them this was a problem, they start doing any number of things. So they create an ad hoc board of health. They um, hire Frederick Mala to do his scientific investigation. They turn to their um, engineers on the Board of Public Works. They say, what can you do? Do more. Um, and so everyone's scrambling to find a solution. But if we want to follow the chemist, Frederick Mala is not part of the city government, right? He's essentially hired in this moment. Um, he is, you know, a fairly prominent citizen in Chicago in that he's a professor, he testifies in toxicology cases. The other things that he does in his life um, are visible uh, things. And reporters are really interested in what he's doing. They follow him on his final trip up the river to test the water. And I, um, I won't give away everything. Um, I do want people to read the book and, and find these stories. Um, but Mala, it doesn't have political power. And so when he finally completes his report at the end of the summer, he goes to the city council board meeting um, and he has to do this three times before he finally could submit his report. Um, the first time there aren't enough people, so they adjourn. The second time they just run out of time, I guess, and decide it wasn't important enough um, because of the other things the politicians had already decided to do. And finally, he submits his report the third time, and they take up none of his recommendations. Um, so Mala's ex experience with city government, because he's not part of the city government, um, is very different than what Chandler experiences um, in the 1870s because Chandler actually is in the city government and Chandler has opportunities to make even bigger changes. One of the things that Chandler does from his position in New York City is he turns to the state government and gets New York State to create a state board of health, um, which has even more oversight um, to really intervene in what's becoming a, a political dispute in the greater New York area, because Chandler says the smells are coming from Brooklyn. And Brooklyn at that point was still an independent city that did not want um, to lose its power to its neighboring city, New York, um, which was mostly Manhattan Island. Such a fast, yeah, such a fascinating story. Uh, and th there's so many kind of twists and turns there. Um, you mentioned the Civil War a couple of times, and I, I found I found that very interesting. You have a whole chapter on the Civil War, uh, just kind of turning turning away from from the noxious businesses 
the Civil War, you, you kind of position it as it's sort of an education to American people in general about smells that gets them thinking about them in a way that's different before. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So in the early part of the book, um, which is also the early decades of the 19th century, cities might have this problem with smell, but cities are really small. And in the much broader American um, populace, it's significant. So there's not a reason for most people to be concerned about the things that that is that are concerning to these physicians and to people who have moved to cities. Um, and this is one of the ways in which the United States in the 19th century is very different from the United States today. The majority of the population was rural. Concentrations of foul odors then are things that people associate with cities and they associate with cities industries like slaughterhouses. Um, and one of the things that's already happening by the start of the Civil War is slaughtering is um, is a practice that has been um, you know scattered for a really long time throughout the United States, but industrialized slaughter in slaughterhouses um, is something that is concentrating in particular urban areas because of the rail lines. So Chicago is an excellent example, but before that, um, you have Porkopolis in Ohio, and um, so that those concentrated industries have much stronger stenches um, than, you know, a farmer who butchers a pig in the fall or maybe two, you know, um, they're familiar odors, but they're changed by the intensity of these industrial operations. But when the Civil War starts, Americans um, from cities and from small towns and from farms everywhere enlist. And I was really intrigued once I realized what I was reading by the fact that they called their camps instant cities. Um, now, we might just think that that's because of the, you know, the size of the population, right? All these people come together. They have tents in the same place. Um, but... The Sanitary Commission, which is created um, in the Union by a lot of the same physicians who were concerned about public health, they go to these instant cities, the new camps, and they find that they instantly have created some of the worst problems of urban environments. So there's definitely a stench. Um, there are in the course of the war, specific regulations that are created about where latrines should be located, how far away from camps and um, downwind, certainly, um, so that those odors aren't going to blow back in to the camp. Uh, regulations about where people can put their garbage. But for the soldiers in these camps, I mean, this is really an education in what cities are like. And soldiers themselves make these comparisons. They talk about the tents um, as being like tenement houses, um, which are these overcrowded, um, you know, apartments that you find in city centers. And um, one of the things that they're talking about when they talk about this is the problem of the air that they breathe, that because these tents are overcrowded, there's too many men breathing the air, um, which also means there's too many uh, men exhaling into that air. 
One concerns with air in the 19th century is that exhaled air, um, which they called vitiated air or respired air, is loaded with everything that your body casts out. Um, and that that air is not healthy to breathe in. But when people are pressed together, often that happens, right? Just as a result of those conditions. So that's, that's one of the things that soldiers learn. But another thing that everyone learns um, when they, in the aftermath of these massive and deadly battles in the Civil War, um, is about the stench of death, which is something that people have encountered before, but like those concentrated slaughterhouses, not on this scale. Um, and people react to it in lots of different ways. Um, going back to the original premise that because smell is a mute sense, we need to pay attention when people start talking about smells. Um, these vivid descriptions, and particularly of the fact that you know, soldiers writing home tell their families, there's no way that you can understand what I've just experienced, the sounds, the sights, the smells. I cannot describe the smells. Um, I think those things are really profound, but on their own. Um, and the sensory history of the Civil War is something that I think is fascinating, and I hope more people will take it up. I know Mark Smith um, has written a book really just to introduce people to those questions, but there's lots of room for others uh, to explore. Um, when we put that in the larger frame of the 19th century, um, which is what I do in the book and as a 19th century historian, I think the Civil War becomes really important because what people have been talking about in cities, the fact that these concentrated odors are harmful to their health, um, that's the way they believe it. The Civil War has more deaths because of disease um, than because of um, the battles themselves. And it's a real learning moment for all sorts of people who haven't been in cities before and haven't encountered these types of environmental problems. So it, one of the takeaways is that this is a real issue and we have to deal with it. Um, and that yet there are also lots of other personal takeaways because individuals who serve, um, you know, they can't forget what they've experienced for the rest of their lifetimes. Um, and so the I think the Civil War has lots of different impacts. And it's one of those places that brings together all of the different actors that I talk about in the book. It's not just chemists like Mala and Chandler who are really important and who are worried about smells, but it's also women. Um, in the Civil War, lots of women serve as nurses, but before and after the Civil War, women are responsible for protecting their family's health in their homes. And uh, their experiences, both before and after um, the Civil War, I think, are really important in terms of how um, odors are experienced within homes, but also um, how like everyday Americans deal um, with these urban environments that they move into. 
So much there, but it's, I mean, you could write a whole book just on, on, as you point out, smells in the civil war. That's, uh, and someone else can do uh, that. Really, I'm opening that door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, me. that's the, yeah, sure. But that's the beauty of, of, uh, kind of environmental history developing is that someone probably will get that idea possibly from, from reading this book. And, and just as Conover Valentius was a stepping stone to your research, your research can be a stepping stone to someone else's. So, that's uh, really great. So is there anything that surprised you? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot that surprised you as you were going through the, the research process, but but anything uh, fun or interesting or unusual that you encountered in the research process itself that, that stands out as memorable? So one of the things that most surprised me, um, although it's really obvious when we stop to think about it, um, is how women used odors to protect health. And this is a great opportunity because we can talk about some good smells uh, for a change. Um, this has been very stench oriented until now. Um, <laughs> True. <laughs> so like on the same premise that bad odors are harmful, good odors were supposed to be helpful for health. And so this requires some like thinking outside of our current practices, um, but before the Civil War and well before um, the introduction of germ theory in the 1870s and 80s, women who are responsible for the home, who are responsible for their family's health, are able to use odors as disinfection. They, If you think that smells cause infection, then bad smells cause infection, then good smells would be disinfectant. And this shows up in lots of different places, but it's another thing where I had to go to the dictionary uh, to understand what I was reading. Um, so throughout the 19th century, women are very particular in planting um, plants around their home on the outside and the perimeter, um, but in cities in what they plant in their window boxes. And I read any number of household columns that said, uh, you know, gave specific plants that you needed to have in the window boxes. And I didn't quite understand <laughs> what that was about until I looked up the word sweet in that 1832 Webster's Dictionary. So everyone get a dictionary if you want to do um, research like this. Sweet, it turns out, doesn't just mean, you know, pleasing um, to the smell. When they talked about sweet flowers, that's what I thought they were talking about. It smelled good. Um, it also means, um, has, a, has a second meaning as purifying, that it removes noxious material from the air. And once I read that, I had to rethink every single mention of sweet flowers because they're recommending them for their sweetening powers, the flower's ability to remove noxious material from the air. And that means that window boxes were like ways of improving the air as it blew in from city streets into your home. Um, it also helps to explain why there are so many lilac bushes, uh, particularly by outhouses. <laughs> They're supposed to be counteracting, right? Cleansing those foul odors from the air. And that was something that I was amazed by when I realized it because it's one of those everyday practices in the 19th century that we don't spend any time 
um, or I hadn't spent any time really thinking about or looking at. The other thing that it changes is what the purpose of a nosegay or a boutonniere was. Um, you know, it's easy to think about those things. We see them in illustrations of cityscapes often, you know, people walking in the street, everyone has like a flower in their lapel as, um, just this very different sort of genteel way of being. Um, but those were actually really important. Um, there are specific plants recommended for the, for nosegays as well. Um, so that you can put your nose in them when you encounter a foul odor and protect your health. This is the understanding that they had by breathing the good odor, um, out of the nosegay instead of the bad odor that's in the air around you. And I think that really changes um, what we think um, because we have to pay attention to these materials for what they are and how they look, but also for the odors that they were releasing and how those were important to the people who you know, spent the time um, or the money to get a nosegay and then were arming themselves, right? Not just wearing it, but arming themselves every day as they moved through city streets. So that was something that um, I figured out really late in the process, but really uh, surprised me, fascinated me. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, it just changed a lot of what I had looked at so many times, but never really paid attention to um, bouquets on hospital bedsides <laughs> suddenly look different. I mean, there's a lot um, that still could be flushed out from that. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh i have noticed that too and, and and now that you now that you uh talk about it in that way you know the picture of your classic 19th century urban gentleman with the you know, big handlebar mustache and the top hat and he always does have the flower yeah. in the lapel yeah that's 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 really interesting I, i'm thinking back to um I, i'm a huge movie buff and and there's uh, not that many movies that are made at least accurately about urban life in the 19th century, but one of them uh, is Scorsese's uh, Gangs of New York. And it, some of the things that you've been talking about, it, it, and, and they actually did did some research, I think, on what cities were like, just the, the environment around there. And, and I, I just remembering and thinking also about how do you write about smells is a similar problem to how do you show that in a movie where, you know, the audience can't smell what's mm -hmm. on the screen. But if you show... You know, the camera goes past, you know, somebody scraping a, a, a you know, a tannery where they're scraping fur off of a, 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 a cowhide or something like that. You know, it's it, it brings it home in an interesting way. And, and I, I think some of the things you did in the in the book were to use our other senses to try to focus us in on on smell. But that the, there are so many interesting little insights like that about the about the flowers and the and the boutonnieres. That's that's really fascinating. Again, the power kind of environmental history to, to sort of recast our view of these things. Yeah. So we're uh, we're getting toward the toward the end of our time. Uh, what are you working on now? I'm, I'm curious to to see what your next uh, act is going to be. The, that's a great question. Uh, it's what I'm wrestling with as well. What am I working on now? Um, I am moving away from smell. I, I don't want to be the smell historian my entire career. Um, but I do have two projects <laughs> that uh, really have come out of what I was working on in this book. Um, 
the first is a long-term, long-haul uh, kind of project, and that is I'm really interested in how new scientific knowledge became common sense in the 19th century or was dismissed as being nonsense. And I'm particularly interested um, in, in following that by looking at cultural materials. Uh, one of the things we haven't gotten to talk about, um, but are some of my favorite materials that I worked with in the book, um, and they're in the book, so listeners can go and look at them, um, are a lot of the illustrations, um, you know, political cartoons, as well as poetry. And I think that these cultural forms did a lot of work um, to actually popularize uh, new scientific knowledge, but many of these things were not written by scientists themselves. So I want to follow those forms, you know, sort of forwards and backwards to look at how they're translating new scientific research uh, for a much wider audience and, and repackaging it in ways that sometimes were productive, but also probably in other times were not. Um, so that's a really big um, question. And there are lots of different things that I can look at and I can think about to do that. Um, so that's that's like the long term project. The the shorter term, <laughs> but still fairly long project I'm looking at right now is the story of Miller's River. Um, Miller's River used to run between Cambridge and Somerville, Massachusetts. It is no longer there. It's something that happened as a direct result of stench complaints. Um, the smell got so bad that houses turned black overnight. And one of the solutions to that was filling in the river. Um, I'm interested in following that river backwards through time, um, which is the opposite of how historians normally work, to look at um, both environmental memory, right, how people remember or don't remember the river now, um, how people in the 1870s remembered the river before slaughterhouses um, had lined its shores and dumped their offal into its waters, um, how people earlier on remembered the river. Um, and also that's opened up another question about what has happened to smaller waterways throughout all of our American cities. So streams, creeks, runs, and brooks um, were there in the 19th century and um, were increasingly filled in, um, not only in city centers, but also in, on, on the fringes of cities to, I think, make way for suburban expansion. Um, and so I'm, I spent last week at the Library of Congress in the Maps and Geography Division, um, just going through uh, map after map of uh, cities through time and looking for for waterways uh, that were once really prominent within these areas, but have since disappeared. I don't know yet what the story will be, um, but I'm I'm interested and eager to find out. Great. Well, best of luck with with both of those projects. Those sound uh, sound really interesting. You, <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, uh, Melanie, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. This has really been illuminating uh, in a number of ways. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate you reading the book and your questions about it. Um, and I hope others will also enjoy it. So uh, Melanie Keechel, the author of Smell Detectives, Olfactory History of 19th Century Urban America. It's been a, a real pleasure. So um, we want to thank her and hope you all have a great day. 
Thanks very much. I want to thank Dr. Melanie Kiechel of Virginia Tech, author of Smell Detectives, an olfactory history of 19th century urban America. That's out now on University of Washington Press. Really great new environmental history book, really fascinating as you heard. So we want to thank Melanie very much for her participation. My name is Sean Munger. I am an author, podcaster, historian, and teacher. Uh, Again, I have my own historical podcast called Second Decade, and I teach history courses online. And I sometimes bring you uh, great interviews with great historians like you heard today. So thanks very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.